This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Karina Kilmore, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Um, now, let me introduce you because this is your first book um, and I'm introducing you to new listeners, new readers. Karina is a writer and a newspaper journalist with more than 30 years experience. Under the byline Karina Barrymore, she covered almost every major business scandal and financial event since 1987's global share market crash and has written for the US, UK, Australian and New Zealand publications. Wow. So I get around. You do get around. And I guess it's coming around again, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It We're is. in a big market crash at the moment. We yeah. are. Yeah. She has a passion for consumer rights and social justice and is a strong financial rights advocate. Where the Truth Lies was shortlisted for the prestigious Unpublished Manuscript Award at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards in 2017. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Although she is a debut novelist, Karina has had more than three million words published in articles for papers, magazines and news websites around the world. Equivalent to more than 30 novels. Who worked that out? Me. <laughs> I'm a numbers nerd. Oh, you're a numbers <laughs> nerd. She has also written three financial investment books. She grew up in the North island of New Zealand, Middle Earth, and also she dropped out of high school. She later studied business and journalism at New Zealand's Macy University. Her first journalism job was in Wellington before she moved to Melbourne in 1990. Karina lives in Melbourne's inner city suburb of Richmond with her Aussie husband and teenage daughter. She is also a national convener of Sisters in Crime Australia. Wow. So there's not a free minute in your dad. There's not a free minute, no. And I like to say that I'm actually a survivor of being a mother of a teenager. Yeah, it is. It's such a hard job. Yeah. Yeah. How old's your teenager now? She's 18. Yeah. Yeah. She just Uh, finished school and just about, or just started university mm, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. It's the different phases, isn't it, with with children growing up? You know, you get that beautiful baby phase, which is exhausting, but you know, so cute. And then you get that kind of lower primary, which is they're really nice people. And then they go into being a teenager. They do. (laughs) That's hard. Teenagers are teenagers. Yeah. But they do come out at the end of it. I've seen that happen a lot. Thank you. I need that. (laughs) Yeah, it does happen. It really does. Um, Karina, I want to talk about your career. So let's first start um, at why journalism? What was there for you? What is it that attracted you to that profession? My... um, Mother was a journalist and my father was, I didn't know my father um, most of my life, but he was a um, newspaper printer. So there was, you could say that journalism was in the blood or newspapers were in the blood. But I grew up in a really large political family in New Zealand. So I had a front row seat to some of the biggest news events and some of the biggest activities that were happening in the news in New Zealand. 
Uh, unfortunately, I dropped out of school at 14 and... Um, you were distracted? Uh, yeah, I was distracted. I wanted to be independent. I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to live it. And so I got a job. One of my first jobs was as a typesetter on a newspaper. And um, during that time, I realised I really needed to, to get an education if I want to, you know, maybe one day be a journalist. So I went to university. I went to Massey University, studied correspondence. I started doing business and finance, and I loved that because I loved to see the other side of this big sort of tribal divide between unions and corporations. I wanted to know both sides of the story, and I've been brought up with only one side of the story, the, the union side of the story. So I love studying business and finance, but it wasn't where my heart lay. My heart lay back with journalism and so I switched to journalism. I finished my journalism qualification and was lucky enough to, you know, to be offered jobs before I finished that qualification. Mm. So I immediately went into a finance role, which I just loved. Mm. So that's how I got there. The responsibility of media organisations and owning newspapers um, is something that is so immensely relevant at the moment, isn't it? You know, when I think about the Murdoch empire and how irresponsible they are, and the effect that has now, not through just print, but through social media, it's kind of frightening how swayed we are by the message that that particular media organisation wants to give out. You know, Fox and Friends is another example. I think all um, media owners have always been like that. Media ownership has always been a business. You um, produce a product, which is news, and you get paid by advertisers. There's that that, that um, you know, equation, that business model has always been the case. I think it's up to us to decide which news we read. It's up to us to decide if we can trust a news service or not. And it's up to us to to either read that news service or, or look somewhere else. Yeah, I agree with you to a certain point, Karina. I think you and I can do that. But I think when you're tabloid, when the media has a stronghold and probably has more ownership than it should have, it's very hard for the average person to decipher that, don't you think? I think it's a bigger problem now where we don't have so much um, private ownership of media. I think the social media situation is is causing more um, disinformation than ever. Yes, and I think that has created a really difficult world. Not only has um, social media through uh, Facebook and, and the big internet platforms taken away all the advertising revenue from traditional publishers, but it's also given that platform up to anybody to self-publish anything they want. Nothing is fact-checked. Nothing is verified. And people you know, listen and follow almost blindly or, or you know, without checking it themselves. That is so true. I, I got a text from my sister yesterday and it was apparently, it was about the coronavirus and apparently it was from the UNICEF, UNICEF website and, you know, one of them was donate ice cream or something. And one, the English didn't read properly to me and two, I thought that's not the UNICEF logo. So I went back and checked and it wasn't. And I thought how many people are like her and disseminate false Everybody, everyone does, so often un, unknowingly. Yeah. But, for example, my daughter at 18, her whole life she has grown up with social media. She does not have a reference point in her life at all of a world without social media. And that's all her peers as well. So mm. this is like a great big giant science experiment coming through with this next generation of people um, 
who don't know any other world other than a world with social media. I'm older. I have a reference before social media. You know, I know, I saw the development of social media. I can decide which is um, a good site, which is a bad site. I can decide which is a false, you know, scamogram or mm. whatever it is, or just bad news. But she can't, mm. you know, and her peers can't. Mm. I use, I mean, you know, I, I feel as though we need to support the bigger papers. I mean, you know, I subscribe to the big ones, including the New York Times, and I always fact check everything, reference it back to that. It, it, it is, it's a tough time at the moment, isn't it? Because I was thinking only this morning, um, I was around for SARS and you probably were too. And I was traveling. I was actually, I went to Italy and I had a shocking cold at the time. And maybe I had SARS, I don't know. But I feel as though the difference between SARS and the coronavirus is social media. I'm not sure what the difference is. I just saw a, a fabulous post by the New Zealand Prime Minister this morning. I love um, her. I'm, I'm in love with her too. I love her. She um, was in, a, she does all her own social media, yeah. which is great for a start. You can tell. Yeah. Yeah. It's not cut and flash and professional. It's just natural, which yeah. is the way she is. So she was in conversation with two um, virus experts and she was asking the questions that that her population wanted to know. Absolutely. And the answers were just so straightforward and, yeah. you know, easy to understand. Yeah. So that's the sort of information that we aren't getting. No, we're not. So I've been sort of um, spreading that on yeah. the virus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been spreading that podcast this morning. Actually, it was on Instagram as well. I've been spreading that around yeah. just so that people get that information. Absolutely. I think the, what's coming out of the government here is fear politics. Propaganda. Take, propaganda taking over the general health message that we should all be getting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, some of our listeners often say that they enjoy listening to my podcast, but they don't like me talking about politics, but I can't separate the two. So my life is entwined with them. So I just want to briefly touch on leadership globally. Mm. I mean, what is your view on We've that? We've got the leadership that we voted for. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've got the leadership in Australia that we voted for. We've got the leadership in the US that the US population voted for. Um, the UK, you know, you know we, we with, get what we're given. You yeah. know, with the US, I feel a bit sorry for them because I feel that there's been so much gerrymandering over there, that there's been so much fiddling around with the electoral borders that in a way it's not what people voted I really can't answer about that, but it looks like Trump's going to get in again. It does. So it doesn't look like an accident. It doesn't look like it was gerrymandering. Mm. It looks like that's what they want. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Okay. So why do we want that? Is it because we, do you know, I've got a theory on it. And my theory is that people are struggling to catch up with progress and it's fearful and they don't know what's going to happen in the future and, and the future is an unknown. So those of us that grapple with what our future is going to look like and maybe can't deal with change want to go back to the past. That's my view. I think I agree, but I'd like to narrow that down to money. So people are afraid that they can't afford a good future. They don't see a future mm. for themselves. They don't see that um, they can buy a house. They don't see that they can afford a university education. They don't see a way through when all these things, when we're told that all these things are required. 
You know, we're, mm. we're told that we Australia has a high um, home ownership rate. Well, if you don't have a home that you can afford to buy, where does that put you? That puts you out of the norm for Australia. That's a bad feeling, you know. Mm. You're just as much a part of the society and economy as a renter as you are a homeowner. If you can't afford an education, um, where does that put you in the job market? Does that mean that you'll have to um, have a low income all your life? So it is. It's about not being able to see their future, but I I really narrow it down to a, a financial future as as the main driver of this um, unhappiness and this underlying tension. I think it creates um, increased racism. You know, they see people from other countries coming in and, and looking prosperous. Brexit, exactly. Even in Australia, you know. Mm. Um, I saw a backlash against um, refugees receiving um, social welfare, you know, because some local people may not have qualified for social welfare. Mm. That sort of, you know, meanness has has sort of infiltrated the the way that we think now. And I think that's exactly what's happened in the US. I think it's what people used to describe as an underclass of unhappiness and that usually stems from financial disadvantage, an underclass of of, um, unhappiness, but that's no longer an underclass. That's almost a majority. And we have to realise that. We have to reassess our aspirations. We have to stop talking about wanting this and having that and having more. Um, that comes especially from our corporate leaders and our government. Big business. Big business. Big business want to make money from us. That's all they want to do. Mm-hmm. They don't want us to have a better life. They don't want us to have a nicer society, a kinder lifestyle and and government, short-term government thinks the same. Mm. All they want to do is get in next time. Mm. You know, At all costs. At all costs. And I've... the cost is to us as yeah. people. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I mean, I say this all the time, you know, um, and some people agree and some people disagree, but I think John Howard introduced hatred in this country and used that fear to keep him in in the role of Prime Minister. Yeah, it's I the mean, politics of fear. And, and this government is doing the same. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely the same. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> I want to talk about just briefly, um, and I don't know whether you have a view on this and I can't, you know, it's just something that I've been thinking about um, through my reading. But there is, I feel, the um, the structure and organisation of the way we live, including politics, and there's social media. 
And we're still running elections, for instance, or we're still, the way we live has been the way we've been living for 100 years. But social media has come in and, you know, particularly when people are talking about rigging the US election and the Russians and whatever, I feel as though there's two parallel systems at the moment. And there is a clash there. Do you think that? We're at a crossroads, absolutely. And I think that was really shown up by the global media. The global media thought that Trump getting elected was a joke, that it would never happen. You know, this reality TV guy, um, this, you know, failed businessman, this corrupt person becoming the president of the United States, that's just not going to happen in a, in the traditional way of thinking. But that, that was our mistake. That was our mistake for thinking that old way. Yeah. You know, we need to realise that social media has come in and the wave is taking over everything. But and even, we need to understand that and get yeah. on board with it. But even the systems are old-fashioned compared to social media, if you like. Yeah. You know, like if you look Another at, mistake. Another, another mistake, you know, yeah. yeah. The yeah. companies are behind the times, the government is behind the times. The infrastructure doesn't support these two systems. You know, traditional can't um, compete with social anymore. No. We are behind the times, you know, the older people who keep, you know, referencing traditional have to stop doing that. We can't think that way anymore. Yeah, it's changing times. Okay, so you've had, you know, a a big kind of career in terms of journalism um, and then you've decided to take your hand to writing. I mean, writing a novel. You've been writing for a long time. Tell me where that came from. I think it was, I was, it was never in me. You know, some people say that there's always, there's a novel bubbling away somewhere wanting to come out, but it was never in me to write a novel. I had too much to do just writing news, you know, Mm. just writing um, my daily job. Um, but I was listening to a radio interview about, um, it was the um, Victorian Premier's wife, Kath Andrews, talking um, on a radio interview about the importance of books and how books create better societies, how they create empathy. We absolutely agree with that here. Empathy. Yeah, empathy. You know, empathy. Yeah. How do you learn empathy? You can learn it yourself by reading someone else's story, mm-hmm. by understanding their story. Even fiction. Absolutely. I'm yeah. I'm really talking about fiction when yeah. I say this because you can't get the same empathy through a news story. Yeah. You know, I've written lots of news stories and I and I think now that that should connect, that message should connect, but it doesn't. But a but a fiction story really makes a connection with people. One because they choose to read it and two because they create their world, their own world inside the story that they're reading. Mm. Even though the author has written it in a certain way, as the reader, you put your own interpretation on it. It as well. This is like a slight segue, but I'm going to throw it in. We have over, I think it's 220,000 likes on Facebook, right? A, re- a huge reading community. We reach about 350, 400,000 people a day. We don't get trolled. There's no anger, there's no bitterness in our comments. And we get hundreds and hundreds of comments a day. And I know that because I read them every night. And people are astounded about that. But I think it's them, it's the readers. Because they are voracious readers. They read so much. And I feel that they are a group of people that have a lot of empathy. And I think that's why we don't get trolled as much as other people do on social media. I think so too. And I also think that fiction is the the reason why. Because as a journalist, I, I would be read a lot too every day. And 
and the trolling is is relentless. Mm-hmm. You know, the, so we don't get that the abuse. Yeah. So even those those people are obviously readers as well. But I think it's the the fact that they're reading fiction. Compared to to reading news, so um, fiction fiction really does that. It brings people in. They choose that book. Mm. They choose to read that story. They choose to engage with that character, and they can also put their own interpretation on it. Well, you can't do that with news or nonfiction. You know, you're told what the story is in in news and nonfiction. So anyway, so you hadn't been thinking about writing. No, I hadn't. And so I was listening to this interview and I thought, gee, that's a really and I'm I am a social justice person. Yes, I knew that, but I'd been a reader all my life, but I hadn't actually participated in creating a a fiction work, creating a book. And so I thought, okay, step up, you know, write something for that world, for that community, help create this empathy and this understanding between different cultures and different types of people. And I had a couple of themes running in my mind because of my family connection. I had, I obviously had a journalism theme because that was my career, my love um, of the media. My family, um, I come from a line of um, wharfies and truckies and unionists and um, you know, p- people from the blue collar side of life. I'd worked as a finance journalist in the finance industry, which is the white collar side of life. I know. I was going to say, I mean, how do you marry those two up, working as a finance jur- journalist and having that background? That's quite different, isn't it? Very different. But that's a deliberate thing that I chose. I mm-hmm. wanted to learn about that other side of mm-hmm. um the equation. There's always two arguments in every equation. And we need that reporting to yeah. come back. Yeah, yeah we do. Yeah. But as a reporter, I'm not introducing my opinion. You know, I did run a um, financial opinion column, one of the longest in Australia, 14 years. Um, but that was very separate for to who? my daily job. That was for News Corporation. Right. Yeah. That was very separate from my day job at News, which was writing news, reporting yeah. what other people say. And I think people forget that about journalism. Yeah. Journalism is reporting other people's words, putting it in a format where people can read it and understand it. Whereas fiction, you know, fiction has a much greater reach, you know, it has a much greater connection with people. And so... I went home. I started writing a manuscript. Did uh, you have an idea? I had a rough idea. Um, it started from I wanted to put the female journalist into a man's world and so I, I put her on a wharf in the middle of blue-collar workers in a bad situation. So I wanted to dump her in and have her fight her way out. And I wanted her to challenge um the workplace challenged the male way of thinking and but I couldn't have her a perfect nice person you know she had to come to that equation with her own baggage and her own struggles and so that's that was roughly my idea and then I've discovered I've been told uh, that I'm a pantser so I don't plot anything I sit down and I let the uh, the story take me and and Chrissy O'Brien who's my character um, she took me on this wild journey. Wow. She, she led me everywhere yeah. that the story went. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the writing process. 
process. Did you find, because how many thousand words is a fiction novel? What, 60, 70, is it? No, oh, it's no, more than that. It's 90, isn't I it? I think the average is about 90, 90 80 yeah. or 90. Yeah. Um, so you've gone from journalism, which in a sense is short form. Short form. Yeah. To long form. Tell yeah. me about that transition. I did it in small bites. Yeah. I set myself a word target each night. So I was working, um, taking my daughter to school in the morning, running a household, two dogs, crazy dogs, elderly mother, you know, had all the life things going on, husband, you know, everything. And I wanted to get this deadline. I only had about six months before the deadline. So Who made the deadline? That was the deadline for the competition. Right. That was okay. the so um, that's a unpublished deadline. manuscript. Yeah. And yeah, I love a that, deadline. Yeah. I need to have a deadline. So that was the deadline. And also that deadline yeah. ain't going to move. No, that's right. There's no flexibility with the <laughs> no. deadline. So I set myself a word target and the target was 2,000 words a day. Wow. That's and a lot. at word o'clock, I stopped. If I didn't get to word o'clock, I didn't stop. And some... And I wouldn't start I couldn't start writing because of all my obligations until I went to bed at night. So I would sit up wow. at night with my laptop on a pillow in front of me and type until I got to that word o'clock. And that was often, you know, three or four in the morning. Sometimes it didn't come and I had to go straight um, to dropping my daughter off at school. So it really takes discipline. But because I'm a journalist, because I've had to write to deadline every day of my life, that was the only way I could do it. I had to have a deadline and I had to have a, you do a word you target. Know, don't you? Yeah. 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 Okay. And so then you sent it off? I sent it off and I got a – I forgot about it. I sent it off and I forgot about it. And I got a phone call. I was in one of those great big, huge um, discount shops, more like a warehouse than a shop, hunting around for, for things. And I – my phone was ringing and I couldn't answer it. I had my hands full of such great bargains. I wasn't going to put them down and it kept on ringing. And I thought, I suddenly got worried. I suddenly thought, oh, there's something wrong with my daughter at school. You know, I, I need to answer this phone call. Someone's trying to reach me urgently. And it was the um, woman from the award to say that I'd been shortlisted. Wow. And I really didn't believe her. I, I made her check who she was calling. I made her check the, <laughs> the title of the story, the, I wonder author, how often the author's name. And I even made her send me an email because I'm such a fact checker. Yeah. I made her send me an email while I had her on the phone with, with the truth in it, you know, that it was definitely me. And that was the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. It was. In 2017. Yeah. Yes. That's it. So it was definitely you. It was definitely me. And I was overwhelmed, really. I really didn't expect to win. It was the first time I'd ever attempted, uh, oh, I didn't win, but shortlisted. First time I'd ever attempted a long form of writing. First time I'd ever attempted a novel. Well, storytelling, isn't it? It's different. It is storytelling. And yeah. I think I... Within me, I always wanted to be a storyteller rather than a um, well, a story weaver, I say, rather yeah. than a storyteller. I think I've told stories through journalism or told, you know, passed on information through journalism, but this is storytelling and story weaving it and, is. and that's what I wanted to do. Well, you've done it really well. The book is called thank Where you. the Truth Lies. Karina, uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. 
or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.